1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 8 through 13. Deacons likewise must be dignified, not double-tongued, not addicted to much wine, not greedy for dishonest gain. They must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. And let them also be tested first. Then let them serve as deacons if they prove themselves blameless. Their wives, likewise, must be dignified, not slanderers, but sober-minded, faithful in all things. Let deacons each be the husband of one wife, managing their children and their own households well. For those who serve well as deacons gain a good standing for themselves and also great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. So we have arrived at the conclusion of our leadership series, kind of taking a a good, healthy look at what biblical church leadership looks like. Um, And we've been... I don't know, just putting road signs up for you guys um, every week about where we're headed and some of the, some of the places um, that we feel like we're going to have to do some heavy-duty work uh, through, these te- through this text to, to understand how Sulphur Community will be led. And David's already forewarned you that whenever you see um, me up here through this series, it's because we're going to hit on some pretty hard things. Um, and so, yes, we need God's grace this morning for, for us as we, as we try to dig through Scripture, as we dig into this truth. Um, and so I ask you, uh, once again, as we've asked every week, is to, um, to, to really just take what you've understood church leadership to be, how you've seen it, um, and not put it away because of the way you've seen it. It may very well have been a healthy biblical way to lead. Um, but just to maybe set it to the back of your scripture for just a minute, not down. I don't want you to, I don't want you to dismiss everything that's been taught to you. Uh, but what I do want you to hear, I, w- I do want you to receive is uh, this word, full of grace and truth, full of grace and full of truth. And then at the end of this, I would hope that um, we would all be enlightened and that we'd all be encouraged by what we see in Scripture and what we'll eventually see here at Sulphur Community Church. So we've spent, um, let's see, one, two, three, four, five, five weeks. This is the fifth, fifth week, David? This is the fifth week. This is five weeks looking at just a few verses in Scripture where we have a clear instruction about church leadership. And the reason we're doing this is because Sulphur Community Church is moving into um, a place where uh, we're, we're growing. Obviously, if you just kind of take a look around the room, we're, we're con- we have continually grown over the last several months. Um, and what that means is our leadership capacity should also grow. Um, that's, that's the result of making disciples. And so when Jesus says, go and make disciples, um, that's, that's what the, the that's what the product is of making disciples, is more leadership. Um, and so as we continue to grow, I, I promise you that you don't want me being the sole leader of all of this. Um, I have, um, and this is, this is no way to like, do a humble brag. I, I'm being very, very transparent and honest with you when I say I'm completely inadequate to do this on my own. Um, and so I, I want to go ahead and throw that out there. Uh, and so you will want 
um, for our leadership to be uh, healthy and multi-headed. You want many people involved in this. And so each one of you come with some sort of leadership capacity. Um, I say this all the time. I look around the room and I'm just blown away by what God's doing. Um, The amount of leadership that we have sitting in in these chairs. Um, What I pray is that through all of this, that because God's gifted you with leadership, that you wouldn't stay sitting in those chairs that you would find a place that you implement what God's given you and how he's gifted you. And so we're going to wrap up our leadership series. And the idea behind this is that we have two that we've brought uh, before you to serve in these roles that, we, that we're talking about. We spent three weeks talking about the qualifications of, a, of an elder, an overseer, a pastor of a church, uh, what the qualifications are for that, what's required of them. And we've presented David Morse to you and said, hey, we want you to examine David and all of the biblical content that's given to us, put him up against that standard, and that's, that's the standard you measure him by. And that is, a, that is a very, very high standard. I mean, to say this is what, at a minimum, what Scripture says about leadership is where you're supposed to be, uh, to be considered for leadership, to be considered as an overseer, as an elder, as a pastor. Uh, And then we picked up last week uh, with the role of deacon. These are the two offices uh, that God has instituted for the church to help lead and serve. Um, And so we we presented Troy Case to you uh, as a role of deacon uh, to be taken on that. And so we're walking through the qualifications for that and the expectations for that and the high calling that comes with that. And these, these men have served in these roles in, in the past. And so that's why we feel like it's, it's, it's uh, of some urgency to go ahead and move forward with installing them here over our church family as, as leaders and servants. Um, but, but I don't want us to get tunnel vision about these are the two guys we're looking at. What I would hope is through all of this time, all of this process of looking through Scripture and talking about leadership and elders and pastors and deacons and servants and all of those things, that, that other people in this family have come to mind that you've considered, hey, you know what, I think I see these qualifications and the eagerness to serve in this capacity in this person or in that person. And so that's what we're asking for. And what we're going to do is um, right at the first of the year, uh, we're going we're to do a formal process of installing these men as, our, as our, one of our deacons and one of our elders. Um, and, and, and in the meantime, you consider what Scripture said about all of this. Um, I am... I am asking you, please give me your feedback, uh, because it's going to be a time where church affirmation is very important for this. Uh, I don't get to make the call if these guys really get to serve in this capacity or not. It is up to the church. It's the church's responsibility to affirm these men in these roles. Uh, so, so please come to me with any reservations. to verse 10. I'm going to kind of recap some of that um, this week so that we can get us kicked off in the right direction and going. Uh, but maybe even just to back up a little bit more and say, here's the background that's going on in 1 Timothy. Um, Paul is writing to... Timothy is not the author of this letter. Timothy is actually the recipient of this letter. Paul is writing this letter. The Apostle Paul is writing it to his uh, young protege, Timothy. And Timothy is a young pastor in a young church dealing with some issues. There's two main issues that that Timothy is dealing with here, and Paul is uh, giving him instruction and coaching him on. And one has to do with protecting the church externally. 
said, look, Timothy, there, there, are, there are ravenous wolves, there are false teachers who are, who are trying to get in there who are, who are already in the church and they're preaching a distorted gospel and you need to protect the family from that. Because these people who are coming in and doing this, they're, they're, really, um, they're really after self-exaltation. And so they want to they teach something that causes the people to look at them and follow them as if they're a savior. And he says, so you need to protect the church externally from false teachers, from a distorted gospel. And the second thing Timothy's dealing with is, is uh, caring for the church internally. And see, first part of this letter is, is Paul talking to him about protecting the church externally. And then he flips to it and says, and here's how to care for the family. And it starts with healthy leadership. It starts with uh, uh, a biblical, gospel-centered leadership within the church. That's how to care best for the family. And so he spends the rest of the letter, or most of the rest of the letter, talking about how to care um, for the church. And this is where we pick up our series. This is where we started five weeks ago. It's right here where here's how we feel like Sulphur Community Church should be cared for. Uh, we pick up with healthy leadership here. That First, we saw that there were elders whose responsibility is spiritual oversight um, of the church family, uh, that they're able to preach, they're able to teach, they're able to protect, they're able to correct with the Word of God for the good of the people and the glory of God. And so that's the role of the elder, the overseer, the pastor, the bishop. You're going to hear me say these names over and over because they're all synonymous um, it, when we're talking about elders. And so that was the role. And so the elders um, are, are men who are in charge of the spiritual care of the family. That's their role. That's, what, that's the role that they've been given. And then we arrive at our passage today. David kind of started it off for us last week, um, where deacons have the privilege of physical care, of the physical care of the church, of the physical care within, within our family. Um, men and women who serve in the church, who, who reflect the compassion and care and love of Jesus Christ. And that's where, that's where we pick up this idea of deacons. And this is a very, very unique, unique um, structure and is only found in the church. Um, it's, it's not just caring for the soul. It, it's also caring for the body. It's not, it's not just caring for what's spiritual, but also caring for what's physical. And that's, that's why God's put these two roles here. It's about bringing heaven and earth together. It's that prayer that we're always asking God about. God, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And you see those two coming together, that, that God cares about the whole person, not just their soul, but the physical aspect of them as well. And so he's put, he's put leadership in place so that the whole person can be cared for. And elders serve the spiritual care, and deacons serve as the physical care. And so the word deacon is... Um, a very, very churchy word. Let's just be honest. Um, that's not a word that we typically use in our normal day-to-day -day conversations. I don't, there's no deacons where I work. Um, I don't know if there's deacons where you work or wherever you do life other than church. Like, it's a real, real churchy term. Um, I don't know of any other context, actually, except in church. And so the context of Scripture, within that, deacon is a very common word. It comes up often in Scripture. So, so within this context, it's very, very, um, it comes up frequently, and, and it literally means just to serve. Well, maybe in its rawest definition, it's to wait tables. 
That's, that's what the word deacon means. It's, it, it's a servant. If I'm a deacon, I'm a servant. Um, that's the literal word, and we're going to go in, we're going to do some heavy-duty homework on that um, today. And so the literal word is to wait on tables, to, to, to serve, and, and, and the church went ahead and grabbed that idea and adopted it for their own and implemented it within the church family, saying we need people to serve our family. And so the, let me just maybe throw this out there. Before, before the deacon is an office or a title, deacon is a value. It's a way of life. It's a characteristic before it's ever an office or a role or a title that one fills. Behind the title of a deacon is a heart that loves to serve people. Bottom line. And Christianity puts a strong emphasis on serving other people and this idea of saying, I'm going to go above and beyond my own need to serve someone else. Christianity puts a high call and a high focus on that. Um, and for some of you, I know this may seem a bit unreasonable that a group of people would actually do this, that they would give sacrificially, that they would serve others sacrificially with, without looking for anything in return. That's very, very uncommon in our, in our society and in our culture to say, I'm going to serve you just because. I don't want anything in return. That's, that's different. That's, that's strange. But the reality is, in the early church, at the church's inception, it was much more strange than it is today. Much more strange. Because today, there, uh, I think I looked at it this weekend, there are like 2.2 billion Christians on the globe today. So it's, it's a, Christianity is a bit more common today than it was whenever we're, we look at it in Scripture and when the church was born. But when the church was born, it was made up of this small band of nobodies. I mean, men and women who were mostly irrelevant, largely uneducated, mainly impoverished people, like a small group of people. And they were preaching a message of, of a Savior who was mocked in their culture and persecuted by the state. Like that's the, they, they carried that message. This small group of nobodies carried an impossible message to the world. And so how in the world, does anybody else kind of consider like, how in the world did a message just get off the ground like that? Like a, a small group of nobodies talking about a guy who everyone hated anyway and they, to a point where they crucified him. Like to take that message and you people who really just are kind of outcasts in society that we've done dis discounted you, how do you get a message like this off the ground? A message that we're sitting here talking about today. How do you do that? One word. Serving. Serving. It wasn't eloquent teachers and speakers and, and philosophers. That's not how the message got off the ground. The message got off the ground by saying, I'm going to serve you. Doesn't matter. Doesn't matter what it costs to me. It doesn't matter if it costs my own life. I'm going to serve others. And that's how this message gets off the ground and these people clung to this idea. And this idea was very radical and very revolutionary. That, I'm, that, 
No one else did this. Like, no one, in, no one else did this to serve everyone. So to be a deacon, and, and David kind of helped us understand this last week. When you hear me say the word deacon and servant, I'm going to say those, those words over and over and over today, and I want you to know that I'm saying the same word. I'm, I'm saying servant because that's, um, it, it's, it's more relevant to us. That term is more relevant to us. But understand that deacon means the same exact thing. And so when I say servant or deacon, I'm saying the same thing. And to be a servant, to be a deacon, is to be radically different. To be radically different. Look at verse 8. Deacons likewise must be dignified, not double-tongued, not addicted to much wine, not greedy for dishonest gain. Dignified much like the elder in that he is to be above reproach. To serve means that you are constant. That you're not saying or doing something with this group of people that's different than what you're saying or doing with this group of people. That you're constant. That you're not double-tongued. That you're not saying two different things. To serve means that you don't need to drink. You don't need to drink. You don't have to have alcohol. You're not controlled by it. A servant shouldn't be addicted to wine. Might I even say that a servant shouldn't be addicted to anything? Anything. You cannot serve others because that is the opposite of addiction. Addiction, it, it's a radical focus on myself. Serving is a radical focus on caring for someone else. So they're, they're, they're polar opposites. And so, so, yes, we talk about don't be addicted to much wine. Like, don't be in a position where you have to rely on it. Oh, I need that to go to sleep or I got a headache. Like, don't, you're not supposed to rely on that. And we've already kind of stated we're not in a position where we say that we don't have a biblical authority to say that you should abstain from alcohol. I don't think Scripture talks about that at all. But what we are saying is that if you need it, if it's something that you're, that you're dependent on, then you, you, might, you might need to do some soul searching there. And, and one can't serve in that capacity. To serve means not taking from someone else at their expense for my gain. A servant gives to others at their own expense. Period. It costs. Okay, and I've said this over and over, and it seems like I'm saying it over the past few weeks a lot more, that the call of Christ looks different for each person, but at a minimum, at a minimum, the call from Christ to us as believers, it's going to cost our convenience. Every one of us. If you're not willing to be inconvenienced, then you can't answer this call. Because at a minimum, it's going to be inconvenient. And for some of you, it's going to be extremely inconvenient to the point of having to give your own life away. That's what Scripture tells us. Jesus says, you want to come and follow me, you've got, you got, you got to forsake everything else and be willing to just give me whatever I ask for, whatever I need, whatever I want from you. You must be willing, open-handedly, to give that to me. So a deacon is radically different. A servant is radically countercultural, different. So the main idea that globally launched Christianity, how did this message get off the ground, was service, serving others. And so the next question comes, 
who am I to serve now? Okay, who is this that I'm to serve? If this message got off the ground, how or who am I to serve? And I'm going to flip over to uh, Acts chapter 6 for just a second to kind of show you. This is where the, the idea of servant was born. As the church began to grow, the need arose for servants. And so if you'd flip to Acts chapter 6, or I think it'll be on the screen, looking at verse 1. Now in these days when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists, these are Greek-speaking Jews, by the way, arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. And the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples and said, it is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. You remember that word literally means to, to weigh tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the Spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the Word. And, that they, and what they said pleased the whole gathering. And they chose Stephen, a man full of faith, and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Prochorus, and Nicanor, and Timon, and Parmenius, and Nicholas, and a proselyte, a, a proselyte of Antioch. These they set before the apostles, and they prayed and laid their hands on them. And the word of, the, and the word of God continued to increase, and the number of disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem. And a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. The, the ministry of deacon was born right here. And they saw the need for it. They implemented it. And the result, is, result of that is that the church grew. It grew in number when they said, hey, we need more healthy leadership to help, help care for physical care for each person. As we do that, they saw the church grow. And so as we grow, we do the same. Again, you're going to hear me say this. I want us to really look like a New Testament church. And I'm not saying that as a, hey, this is kind of what we desire. Like, no, seriously, we really want Sulphur Community Church to mirror the New Testament church as much as possible. I understand we're a couple of years away from the New Testament church. And when it was born, I understand that. But, but the reality is um, there's a lot of things that we ignore in Scripture because it's just irrelevant today that it's out of our context today. And I don't think that we have the liberty to do that. So implementing healthy leadership, that's where it's born. Um, and, we, and to be honest with you, thinking about that, thinking about what we just read, where we're headed, we haven't progressed a whole lot as a society um, when it comes to mixing classes, mixing um, different levels of socioeconomic classes or races or things of that nature. And, and I, for one, am here to tell you um, that I am a strong advocate for seeing that racial reconciliation and socioeconomic classes begin to merge together into one beautiful family. I don't know where, you, where your position is, that, where you come from, or how your background is, but um, it, that's where we're headed. That's, that's where we're going with this. And so in these days, uh, Paul was writing to, to Timothy. And as he was doing this, one of the things that was going on is you didn't, ri you didn't mix rich and poor. You didn't mix 
Jew with Greek or any other race for that matter. That was just kind of, that. you just didn't really do that. Any other socioeconomic class, you didn't mix those two together, that those people here and those people here. And you heard Jesus kind of talking about that he, when he was talking to the Pharisees. You know, when you guys meet together, um, all of the people who are worth something, they kind of get the places of honor at the front and then the, the, the rest of the, 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 um, the peasants and, the, and those who are impoverished, they just have to take a seat in the back or on the floor or somewhere else. Um, and so this thing was, it was a reality and, and we have not grown from this. Uh, as, as the church has worked very, very hard over the past uh, few thousand years and, and we're, we've made little progress. But when Christianity did come on the scene at this point, they did community much differently. They did community much differently. The rich and poor, they hung out together. Uh, the, the racial classes, they, they, they mixed together. And, and they did life together and they served one another. And this was such a revolutionary idea that it even garnered the attention of the, the Roman emperor. Right? And, and, I, and I pulled, a, a, I just kind of in my studies pulled a quote from um, one of the early Roman emperors after the church was uh, birthed. Uh, the guy by the name of Julian, the emperor, and he was writing to the high priest, Arsatius, at the time, and he wrote this, For it is disgraceful when no Jew is a beggar, and the impious Galileans, which is a name he gave to the Christians, support our poor in addition to their own. Everyone is able to see that our co-religionists are in want of aid from us. This is what he wrote to the high priest, complaining that the church is so generous that they're not relying on the Roman government anymore for help for any need. And people are starting to take note of that. And so we're starting to, as a Roman empire, we're starting to lose credibility. This small band of nobodies preaching an impossible message is causing the Roman empire to lose its its, its credibility when it comes to its charity and how it, how it gives saying that no one here wants anything, don't even need anything. The church is stepping up and doing it. And what does the church do today? Oh, man, the government, they don't take care of nothing. I got to do this and I got to do that. And the whole time, man, you're holding everything you have with a tight fist. Imagine it. Imagine this, taking care of all the poor and undesirable. Not just the ones among us here, but all of the poor and all of the undesirable. Imagine what that would look like, that a, a government that is largely stacked against them, okay? Figure this out. Put, put yourself in this position and think about where they are. The government is largely stacked against them. And rather than spend most of their time complaining about how bad it is or how unfair it is or how they don't get their way or how the government's not doing things that they, they think that they should do, what do they do? They served. They gave them themselves to a point where the government said, we're, we're in a fix here. Like, imagine this for just a second, that the government, uh, the, the, the federal government calls each state and says, no need for tax collection anymore. The church got it. They, they, they have it now. And they're taking care of all of that. Now, that's reality. Like, this is what was going on. And w what's wrong with us? Why can't we do this? Why can't we make just a little ripple effect in our community to say, no one on this block is going to have a need that the church can't take care of? 
Rather, we'll drive through the block, not even check up, and complain that the government's doing a terrible job at taking care of that block. Shame on us. Shame on us. That we would be a people that would do that. They sacrificially served. Why did they do that? Why did they sacrificially serve this way? Why are you being asked today to serve this way? Why are we putting, uh, presenting a man uh, to take on the, the role of servant leader and asking him to serve that way? And why would he be willing to do that? Because he understands the gospel. Why would we do that? Why would, why would we want to give of ourselves and serve sacrificially that way? Because we have been given the gospel. We understand what sacrifice means. We understand what serving others means. Because these people were people who realized their own poverty and their own depravity. They realized that. And they realized that apart from themselves, they were nothing. They were, they, they, God did not smile on them. And out of his graciousness, out of his sacrificial love and sacrificial care, he came for them. In Christ, we were all adopted into God's family. And that's why we do it, and that's why they did it. And it made a wave that literally millions throughout the Roman world would become followers of Jesus by serving others. So much so that the the Roman emperor himself would give his life to Christ. And it all happened because they said, you know what, we're going to just serve others out of their own generosity and own grace that God has given us. We realized that we were in need, that we were desperate, that we were impoverished without Christ, and God came and he gave and he served us. And so out of that overflows service and care and love and sacrificial giving and charity and care for others. And that's how the church got this message off the ground, the one that you and I sit here and talk about right now, thousands of years later, still talking about this. And the reality is, there are enough Christians in the world like me who have a voice, who's a talking head, we have enough of those. What we need are Christians who would serve. Who would give their life to serving. And you want to see the gospel get moving? You want to see the gospel grow boots and run through this world? You declare it with a heart that serves someone else. Verse 9. They must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. That's another qualification of the servant, of the deacon. What mystery? Well, I'll just say, jump down to verse 16, and, and Paul will actually give that to us. He says, great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. And here it is, he says it. He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. That's the mystery that the servant is to hold fast to, to hold tightly. That the heartbeat of all of our service, every bit of it, is rooted in Jesus. Every single bit of it. That's where it springs up from. And that's how it is sustained. Because Jesus came to serve. God manifested it in the flesh. Matthew chapter 20, verse 28. Even as the Son of Man came, not to be deaconed, the exact same word, 
served, but to deacon to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Christ lived a perfect life. Christ died a brutal death and he rose in triumphant victory. And that's the mystery that we're to hold fast to. He needs to know, the servant needs to know that all of his passion for serving is born and fueled by the service that Christ has shown us. The gospel, that's where he's rooted. And one who doesn't understand this truth and hold fast to it is unfit for this role. Is unqualified for this role. And you may be here and you may not be connected to Jesus. Like you might not be. I'm hearing you say things like Christian and using all these churchy words and everything else. To Blake, to be honest with you, I'm really not there. I'm not even connected to Christ. My, I, haven't, I don't even know what this is about. But you could conclude that um, serving isn't a Christian thing. There's people all over the world that serve and do a, a good job of it. And, and no one complains about someone who serves someone else. That's always welcomed. Always. And so, it might be that you say adding religion to, to this, trying to mix, mix in some kind of faith-based thing in this, it, it really might probably, it, it likely will cause more harm than good for the Christians to come in with their agenda and, and trying to serve and do all of these other things. Like that might be something that you think about or you consider when we say this. And so you would rather just say, let's keep these two separate. You know, there's this service over here. Then you Christians, you do your thing, you know. I would argue with you that self-sustaining service to others is short-lived. It's short-lived. And I've experienced this trying to serve others out of love for others. That runs out. I'm telling you this right now. If you commit yourself to going into our community and saying, I'm going to connect with this person and I want to see this person flourish underneath the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ. I'm going to spend my time with this person. I'm going to cultivate a healthy relationship. I'm going to make a disciple. What you'll understand is that if you're going with the fuel of love for that person, you're going to quickly run out of fuel. You're going to become really frustrated. You're going to want to hurt that person sometimes. You're really going to lose your patience sometimes. So I'm telling you that service to others is not sustained in your, in your selfish, short-lived power. It's going to run out. And so I would argue with you to say that, um, you know, yeah, you can serve outside of the church. It doesn't have to be a Christian thing just to serve. I, I beg to differ. You can do it temporarily without Christ. Christ sustains us in our service. The idea and model for serving not only comes from Jesus, but is fueled by Jesus, who is the great servant. Verse 10. And let them also be tested first, then let them serve as deacons if they prove themselves blameless. And so last week, David helped us understand that this testing is an ongoing activity. It's not something where we want you to say, hey, we want you to take a look at Troy. We want you to consider all the things we said, and if he fits the bill, he's in. But this is to be a constant examination for the rest of his life, examination. Watching to see that he remains dignified, that he remains, um, to, he refrains from participating or provoking slander. 
talking about others being double-tongued, that he remains sober-minded, that he remains faithful in all things. This is an ongoing examination. In verse 11, their wives likewise must be dignified, not slanders, but sober-minded, faithful in all things. At first glance, this seems to be no confusion here. Cut and dry, right? This is... This has been one of many highly, highly debated verses in Scripture. Believe it or not. As much as it kind of just comes up and says, well, that's very plain and simple. The debate is centered around the word gunekas. It's the Greek word for women. Um, It's the plural form of the word gune, which is woman. And so here's we're going. Buckle in, because we're going somewhere now, Okay. The debate is centered around this word, literally, woman. Um, and many translators would say, it could mean woman or it could mean wife, or women or wives. It could mean either one. And our English translations of the Bible are split nearly in half. Some of your Bibles right now, it might say woman, and there's no debate there. What's on the screen or what's, what I'm saying is something different than what's in your Bible. It's split about right down the middle, woman and wives. And so even in the English translation, we have this kind of conflict maybe. But I would say that most of your Bibles probably have a little footnote, a little number there. If you got your phone or whatever, you can click right on it and it'll take you and it'll say, it could mean either one. I don't mind does. So whether translated wives or women, and this is where you need to grab hold of right here. You kind of connect with me for just a second if you haven't heard anything else I said. There exists no grounds in this verse to qualify nor disqualify females from the office of servant. I cannot come to you with this verse and saying this or this. It simply says woman. And so it can mean wives. A lot of good arguments for that. Or it can mean women. A lot of good arguments for that. So with that being said, my aim um, for, the, for most of the remainder of our time is to answer not whether is it, is it right for a sulfur community church to install a female as a deacon. That's not, that's not what I'm going to try to answer or try to come around. Rather, what I want to do is ask the question, does the Bible give reference to women serving in this capacity? And I approach it this way because biblical is not always preferential. It's not always prefer. It doesn't always line up with how we want it to be or how we've had experience in our past church life. And if it does, if it never causes conflict with you when you read your scripture, if you don't get to 1 Timothy 3, chapter 11, and say, huh, I'm not sure where I land on this, then you need to spend a little more time there because the, the word is supposed to come up to us and, and confront us a little bit, cause a little conflict. That's what the word is supposed to do. And if it's not, then we need to spend more time there. And so the reason I've elected to spend so much time talking about church leadership is because the preferential mode has been to ignore it. Just ignore it. To say, we're not sure, so we're not even going to step there. 
That's been the preference in the church. And I'm not cool with that. And you shouldn't be cool with that either. The preferential mode has been to um, just really ignore the distinction between elder and deacon. And so we've spent a lot of time trying to show you there's a line. There's a clear distinction between these two roles. And the reason we did all of that is so that when we land here today, that there shouldn't be any conflict. That we should be able to take our scripture and, and the initial conflict be worked through. And so many of you, I understand, come from a background uh, where deacons really sat in the position of elder and deacon to a point where the two roles became one role, right? Where it's, uh, David kind of hit on that a little bit last week where he said, the deacon is the bald-headed, burly, big guy or bearded guy. No, because you, re- you referenced Troy and he's not bald yet. And so, so he's the guy who, you know, you see smoking out back. Uh, his kids are wicked. Um, and, you know, he's the guy who takes up the offering. And, and for some, I've heard this statement saying, well, deacons run the church, right? I've heard that said a bunch of times. I hope we've got to a point where we understand the confusion with that, right? That, that, but I understand. I, can't, I have a background. I come from a background like that. And I know that many of you do as well. And so this is, if this is your background, if what I'm saying to you, you kind of chuckle that because you know it's true. Um, I can understand where this would cause some conflict with you. For some of you, it might not. You're like, I I get it. I see it. But for many of us, I understand we come from a different place, and it causes a little bit of conflict with us, and I could understand why if we've looked at a deacon in that position. Big, burly, bearded, almost balding guy. Smokes in the back. He's got bad kids. And so in this case, it's difficult to have a right understanding. Very difficult, nearly impossible to have a right understanding of this text. And therefore, what we're forced to do at that point is to say, this role is only reserved for men. Because we have confused it so much that the safest bet for us is to not put a woman in that role. That's where we've gone. That's what's happened. So, we've now distinguished these roles from a biblical perspective, right? Not a traditional perspective, but a biblical perspective. We see um, the difference between elder and deacon. And so now we have a great opportunity to look at what Scripture says about deacons. And so what I want you to know is I'm not, I'm not, I don't have an agenda, um, that I'm trying to promote. My aim is to, again, like I said in the beginning, replicate Scripture rather than some traditional preference. Okay? And that's, that's the struggle. The struggle is we have to break away from some of our traditional preferences in light of what we learn in Scripture. And, and we need to be willing to do that. So the question... And let me pray for us um, before we move any further. Father, I would come to you now and I would ask for the power of your Holy Spirit to go forth into the hearts of every single person in this room. God, that we would hunger for the truth that is found in your word, that we would be um, receiving your word with grace, with mercy, and with truth. We ask all these in Christ's name. Amen. So the question is not... 
should we install deacons who happen to be females? That's not the question we're, we're after. We're not trying to answer that. The question is, does the Bible mention women who are deacons, literally servants? That's the question we're after. We care about what this says, not about how I feel, or not about how, what I prefer, but what about, what's this say? And so, buckle up, we're going to do a little bit of work over the next few minutes. And I've kind of already talked about this. The Greek word there uh, for deacon uh, has no gender distinction. So there's no way to say diakonos, the word that, that David introduced to us last week, the Greek word for deacon the, literally means servant. There's really no gender distinction. We can't say, well, this one means female deacon and this one means male deacon. So you can't use that. We, we have to do some more work there, right? We just can't say, well, that means male. It can be masculine or it can be feminine in the same um, form. And so that doesn't settle the issue for us. We can't, we can't arrive at our conclusion. So look with me again at verse 11. Wives or women, depending on how your translation reads, likewise must be dignified, not slanderers, but sober-minded, faithful in all things. This could be the wives of the deacons, but could also be women deacons. The word is simply women. I would suggest, um, I would suggest that the, the, the word says women that it's referring to women deacons. And I would suggest that by the fact that no reference to wives or women is found in verses 1 through 7. And don't you think for one second that if a deacon's wife, if, if, she's, if she plays such an important role in this, and she does, don't think, don't think for a second that she doesn't, she does, then don't you think the elder's wife would require a little bit of attention as well in verses 1 through 7? So that's one. However, I don't like coming to a conclusion based on what the Bible does not say. So we have to be careful with that. Um, I just want to put that out there as a note for us to consider. And since we've established that women were not candidates for the office of elder, and if you are here today and you just heard that for the first time, I encourage you, go to the website and listen to the first uh, part of the elders or, that we talked about uh, as far as who's qualified for that role. That um, women were not candidates for this office because of its authoritative role, its teaching, um, and, and its exercising authority over men and it's oversight, I would, I would expect for the absence of women to, to be in verses 1 through 7. Like, I wouldn't expect to read that there if I concluded that this is talking about a deacon who happens to be a woman. Uh, but this kind of confirms, for me, um, the likelihood that the reference to women in verse 11, it, it actually um, doesn't just land at deacon's wives. That's not just, we can't just leave it there. And so... The deacons are distinguished from the elders in that they are not the governing body, okay? So big, burly, nearly balding guys are not the ruling authority in the church. We've established that. However, if we don't draw the clear distinction between elders and deacons, we would see that this causes a conflict, a problem, and then we wouldn't be allowed to install a, a female, a woman, as a deacon because that deacon we're asking to perform authoritative roles in the church. 
of which he shouldn't be serving you. If he is a deacon, we're identifying, we're clearly defining what deacons are. Elders, pastors, leaders in the church, overseers, bishops. It's exclusive to men. Deacons, we're, we're, we're headed in a different direction here. And so the role of deacon seems not to involve anything that Paul taught. If you looked at verses 2 through 12, uh, two, 1 Timothy 2.12, uh, where, where he kind of expressed his, um, you know, his instructions saying, I, I don't allow a woman to teach. I don't allow a woman to exercise authority over a man. He's talking about the elder role right there, uh, not the deacon role. So we can see that, okay, so it doesn't pose a conflict there. Uh, that, a, that a woman can serve in the role of deacon without exercising authority over the man in the church because a deacon is not an elder. He's not an overseer. He's not a bishop. He's not a pastor. She's not. And so, Paul, I mean, it, it, it kind of flows with that. And so, maybe the, the last thing we'll point out, I've kind of shown you a few places where I'm, I'm kind of landing. Um, the last one, maybe the big one that we probably need to come around is, does the Bible reference any females as deacons? That's a big question we have to ask. Okay, so we talked about what it presumably could mean, some things that are missing from Scripture, so we kind of, we, we hit those things, but we have to be careful if we want to make a big decision based on some presumptions or some missing information. So the big one is, does the Bible refer to any women as deacons? Go to your Bibles, Romans chapter 16, verse 1 through 2. Very clear one. Verse 16, this is Paul. He's wrapping up his letter. He says, I commend to you our sister Phoebe, a diakonos of the church, a deacon of the church, a servant. The same exact word that's used in verses, 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 8, diakonos, is this word, diakonos, servant. I commend to you our sister Phoebe, a servant of the church at Kincrahe, and you may welcome her in the Lord in a way worthy of the saints and help her in whatever she may need from you, for she has been a patron of many and of myself as well. So it appears then that the role of deacon is of such nature that nothing stands in the way of a woman's full participation in it. Keeping in mind keeping in mind that there are some situations that are inappropriate for a female to get involved with, just as it's some situations that is inappropriate for a male to address. I can remember whenever we were being considered years ago for the ministry of deacon, um, my wife actually um, was also put on the spotlight, kind of put on the stand to be questioned because we realized that um, if I'm going to physically care for someone, if it's a female, it's probably better that my, my wife or, or so, another woman deal with that, right? It's, it's not cool probably for me to do that. Um, and so it's, it's, we'll keep that in mind as well as we consider this. And so at the end of it all, and here's where we'll kind of move on from here, at the end of the day, let me say this. If, if you've honestly listened to what we've gone through and the case that's been pleaded, and you say, Blake, I really, I really don't think that women should serve in this role. I don't want to discourage you, but you're being served by them now. 
women serve in this role today. Women are servants. They're doing it now. And if we are to conclude as a church that we don't feel like that we should go there, then every woman in this room, I need for you to cease and desist now. Don't serve. You see, there's the, there's, a, there's the other conflict. See, the other conflict is that, well, they can, you know, they can serve in those roles, but we're not going to give them, like we're not going to install them as a deacon. That makes you a hypocrite. And that makes you... I'll leave it at that. Verse 12. Let deacons be, each be the husband of one wife, managing their children and their households well. Again, we find these qualifications for a deacon no less than that of elders. And that's what David was hitting on last week. That it's not something where elder, you're called to these standards, and deacon, you're called to these standards. It's saying that you both have a high calling. These roles have a high calling. Faithful to one woman. Able to lead and manage his family well. If they're not doing these things in their homes, the predictable outcome is that the church wouldn't be cared for. That they wouldn't be able to effectively serve in this role in the church. And so let me give you my definition of deacon based on what we've looked at. A deacon is a man or a woman appointed by the church who reflects Jesus' heart of compassion, mercy, and service to the poor, the suffering, and the marginalized first within our family and our community. That is at the basis where I see deacon ministry. Verse 13, For those who serve well as deacons gain a good standing for themselves and also great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. There's a twofold reward here uh, for servants who are committed to, to serving to the glory of God. The first one is that they gain a good standing for themselves. That's not why we do it. That's not why a, a deacon would serve in that capacity. Is that he, I'm, I'm looking for a good standing for myself. That's the result of serving to the glory of God. A servant who has elder-like respectability, um, who has a strong, strong conviction of their faith and who holds firmly to it, uh, who's been tested, whose marriage and family are a blessing. This servant has positive influence. The servant gains a good standing for themselves. And second, the second reward they gain is a great confidence in Christ. Jesus is the reward for one who serves faithfully. And he is the greatest reward that we can have, that we can ever obtain. There is no greater reward than saying, at the end of the day, everything I do, all of my service, all of my care, all of my leadership, all of these things... All I want is Christ. I don't want to be noticed. I don't want anyone to remember my name. I don't want a paycheck. I don't want you to give me something in return. All I want is Christ because He is the greater reward for all of these things. And if it's true that as the leadership goes, so goes the church, then the character of your leaders, the character of your elders and your deacons is of utmost importance. As the leadership of Sulphur Community Church goes, so goes Sulphur Community Church. And if the leadership goes in the tank, so will Sulphur Community Church. If the leadership 
serves to the glory of God, so will Sulphur Community Church. And we must be on our faces before God seeking this kind of leadership. We must be on our faces. So I don't, what I want you to hear is we're presenting two men to you, but you need to be on your faces about this. You need to be before God asking and pleading with him for the healthy leadership that he can provide, that he will provide. The direction of your life, the direction of my life is paramount. And for those who point the direction for us as we go, they have a crucial role in where we go. Very crucial role. And so today, I point you to Christ, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Let's pray. Father, we come to you today and we are so thankful.